What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode eight. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athletes, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. And don't forget about the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches can network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports, med, rehab, and performance. So join the forum or a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory. Applications can be found at clinicalathlete.com. And this podcast specifically can be found there as well. Also on YouTube and iTunes, where you can leave a review if the show is helpful for you. My name is Quinn Hennick, and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. And I'm joined by Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? Hey, what's up, Quinn? Not a whole lot. And then we're also joined by Derek Miles, a doctor of physical therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. What's up, man? How's it going, Quinn? Good. Uh, also, before I forget, you can support the Clinical Athlete Podcast by going to clinicalathlete.com. And we've got a thing set up on Amazon where, essentially, if you go on Amazon and do your normal dealings and buy your normal stuff, if you buy some toilet paper... You can you can sign up to where uh, we get like half a penny for everything that you buy. So your normal shit, uh, whatever you you buy on Amazon on a daily basis, you can you can support the Clinography Podcast that way. Um, and you can also set up subscriptions. And so if you want to donate one dollar per year to Clinical Athlete, you can set that subscription up on the website clinicalathlete.com. I think the actual URL is backslash clinical hyphen athlete hyphen podcast so uh obviously you don't have to do that and we'll continuously put it put out this enormously helpful and amazingly in-depth content for free uh with our high quality audio and video <laughs> so today's episode is going to be well, for any any announcements guys anything i missed i just want yeah, to jump right in i think you've covered it yeah i think okay. we're good okay so today we're going to talk about you know, probably maybe the most important thing in in, in management of, of rehab and in patients or one of the most powerful interventions that we have is, is patient education and specifically expectations, patient expectations, how they relate to outcomes. And we've got a couple papers that we're going to go over specifically and then maybe even get into a case that uh, Derek can, can outline for us. One of the papers is uh, from the Journal of Physical Therapy, and it's titled Individual Expectation, an Overlooked but Pertinent Factor in the Treatment of Individuals Experiencing Musculoskeletal Pain. And that is from 2010, and the authors on that are Joel Bialowski, Mark Bishop, and Joshua Cleland. And Derek, you've got, uh, you know Joel and Mark pretty well, huh? Yeah, I was trained by both of them during my residency year. Cool. And so this article is, there's a lot of good stuff here. And essentially they define expectations as the general belief a clinical outcome will occur. And so what is the, what is the patient coming in with? You know, what, what do they think is going to happen? And that within that, there are subsets that they take, um, that they define here. One of which is, predicted expectations, which I think is 
one that is probably most that we familiarize ourselves with when we think expectations. It's what the patient thinks is going to occur. And then there are ideal expectations, uh, obviously what the patient, what the patient wants to occur, normative expectations, what the individual believes should occur, and then unformed expectations. And so something that could either they can't articulate or haven't even preconceived yet, which is an interesting subset that doesn't have a whole lot of data behind it, but they go in and kind of define these things. Um, and it's interesting here as we talk through how to measure number one, it looks like there's just not a whole lot of data. Now this paper is from 2010. We're going to go through a systematic review. That's much more recent, but even they will say there's not a validated outcome measure to, for expectations specifically, they're going to go into, we'll go into like some things that they suggest that we can do in clinic. But do you guys measure ex patient expectations explicitly with, with some type of outcome measure, or do you have questions that you use to screen patients? How do you gauge for predictive or what's uh, yeah, predicted expectations specifically? I think a lot of it is just getting into the dialogue of it all. And if you're aware of it, it's something from, well, what are your goals for treatment to do you have any big events coming up that we need to be aware of from a timeline side of it? And, you know, there's a difference in someone who's hurt and has a 5K on Saturday versus one who is hurt and has a 5K six weeks from now. But knowing those expectations definitely change the discussion. It may not change the overall treatment plan, but it will have an effect on, you know, talking about probability, which I'm sure probability is going to come up multiple times during this discussion. But I think it's something that needs to be explicitly asked during the subjective side uh, or subjective part of the interview and, and, you know, as part of the dialogue to figure out, why the patient is here, what are their goals, what do they think is going to occur here. Do you have anything to quantify that from an outcome measure, or do you know of any scale? I, I have never seen a scale directly related to expectations. Mike, what about you? Is it something that you explicitly screen out, or is it just kind of inherent? Yeah, I think, I think it's pretty inherent in the interaction. Uh, like Derek said, during, uh, when you're just kind of talking with the patient during the subjective aspect of the, uh, the consultation. And it's more of just seeing, like, what do they expect from care? Like, what are they going to get out of treatment with at your office? How do they think the process is going to go? Like, what's the session going to involve? What's treatment going to involve and not involve? And then uh, I think timeline is, is big as well. You know, if they come in, and they have a pretty severe injury and their expectation is that they're going to do X, Y, or Z in two weeks, you know, is that realistic expectation and how do we change those to a little more uh, realistic or predicted in this case, expectations of what should happen versus ideal expectations of what they want to happen. So we kind of make sure we're all on the same page with that before moving forward through treatment. I don't, I also don't have anything that quantifies expectations, but I will say that I may actually, after reading this article, as they get into clinical, um, how, how 
integrating expectations in a, in a clinical setting, how you can do that. They do offer some suggestions that are not validated uh, across yeah. any population, but I may start doing something like that just to, to gauge some consistency. But um, I, I have a set of screening questions that I give everybody who comes in the door or before they come in the door. And I try to get that to them uh, and then get answers to that actually before I see them too. And, and so some of the questions are, have you seen other healthcare providers? And if so, what were the treatments and did they have an effect? And then I, I kind of dive deeper. Why do you think they had, they did or did not have the effect that you wanted? And then what? are your, I do ask them, what are your expectations for my services specifically? Um, and so I kind of like trying to compare what they're coming in to see me for compared to what they got in the past and just to kind of see where they are. And that's, it's certainly, there's certainly uh, a very soft science to that, but I think having some type of idea where somebody's head is at, is can just help you as a clinician to at least like prepare because I know if their expectations are very negative towards healthcare in general or, or whatever, then I'm probably gearing up or preparing for a discussion to, to reshape some narrative. So, it, you know, it helps to not get caught off guard. I think, you know, if, if you've got that in mind, um, I, it was going through this article again, they cite some pretty interesting stuff the heading here, the relationship between expectation and, and musculoskeletal pain, they start to look at different studies where they are seeing relationships with predicted expectation and outcomes, but then they're getting into like the higher the predicted expectation seemingly correlated with better outcomes. But what's interesting is sometimes it doesn't even matter. The intervention doesn't matter. It matters their expectation towards the intervention. So they looked at like uh, acupuncture and sham acupuncture and it didn't actually what was what was more of an effect or had more of an effect is if they believed the intervention would work, which is interesting because then it's always the conversation of well does the inter does the intervention matter at all? you know, or is it just their belief? And then it's like, well, then can we, can we reshape that? Um, and they actually reference a couple. It was outcomes were dependent, not upon the intervention the participant actually received, but upon the intervention, the participant thought he or she received. And so they would ask them after the study, which one did you think you got? And then based on their expectation of that particular intervention that had a, an effect on outcomes, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then also the language that they used in different studies. So in standard placebo controlled trials, the, the experimental group or, or all participants will be told you will randomly, you will be randomly assigned to receive either the studied intervention or the placebo. And then they look at studies in which they change the wording specifically they're looking at the mechanism of placebo and in these studies they'll tell the participants quote the agent you have just been given is known to significantly reduce pain in some patients and what they're seeing is a change in the placebo groups will even rise up because you shape you change the wording of of the narrative a little bit 
and that seemingly shifts expectations. So it's just very, very interesting. Um, do you guys, is wording something that's important? Do you, do you frame things in certain ways uh, when we're dealing with maybe chronic pain in particular to help to kind of shape expectations right off the bat? Is that an important deal, just the wording of things? I think the wording definitely plays a big role in it. And a lot of it is kind of like the broad strokes of it. Cause I, I, especially for the chronic pain, people try and have the discussion of, you know, we're not going to make this go away tomorrow. Our, our goal is to increase capacity and, and it's making the treatment into a process instead of a finite thing that as soon as they leave the door, this is over and we're back to where we were. And I think that's a very important discussion to have along the way. You know, if, if you go from walking five minutes to six minutes, doesn't seem like much, but it's a 20% increase. And, you know, framing it through that for setting the expectations of it. Mike, how important are words for you? Uh, pretty important. Anyone who knows me or has interacted with me knows what am I saying is semantics matter. Um, exponentially, probably, I, w I would say if I were to pick one thing in clinical practice that I would hang my hat on every single day, it would be semantics, my communication with the patient and setting expectations. Um, and, and they go through a fair amount of studies about how the language we use and how we set expectations has an analgesic effect, placebo-like expectancy effect is what we often see in the literature now, that key phrase being placebo-like expectancy effect. Um, you said earlier, like, does the treatment ultimately matter? And I think that's a really valid question. Um, I, if expectations are set, Derek and I, anyone who attended our seminars often heard us say, like, you probably could do damn near anything with the patient, obviously with ethics in mind. But if you set the appropriate expectation, um, there's several studies out there on open-label placebo-based studies, especially with, like, irritable bowel syndrome with, um, I think his name's Kapchnik. And they openly say this is a placebo, but there's power in placebo. And if your mind believes that this is going to help mitigate your pain, then it likely is. They administer it, and they still get like a 50-some-odd percent reduction in, in pain symptoms. So, And that's all just because the expectation was set that this may be effective for the person. So to me, it, it's paramount in dealing with patients. I think something, a big part of it is, we often, the new buzzword within the rehab field is neurophysiological, and you'll see studies cited. It's like, oh, there was increased activation of the paraacroductal gray or the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And we see that, and then in these expectation studies where this is being manipulated, we see the same light up. So here it calls into question the, the treatment versus the contextual factors related to the treatment itself. And it, I think without getting too off on it, it, it brings up the discussion of if it, if a study or if a treatment doesn't have prior plausibility or scientific plausibility and it's just the expectation, I, I think that does breed a certain ethical discussion out of it. Yeah, I think. What, what, Go ahead. Uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, the Bendetti study where they basically put hand cream on people's forearms. They told some it was going to be analgesic, some it was going to be painful, and some it was neutral. And the people actually perceived it as such, and not only from their subjective ratings, but the areas associated with pain relief lit up with the analgesic uh, 
demonstration and the same thing for pain. So just having that expectation of something is going to be painful or something is going to be um, analgesic is it causes or is correlated with changes in the actual brain itself. Now, we can have a whole discussion about the efficacy of fMRI, but I think for studies like this, it, it definitely demonstrates that if you expect something to happen, it shapes your perception of what is going to happen and your perception of the world is a large role in how you see the world, how you feel the world, how you interact with the world. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and they go over a lot of that stuff as well. Um, and even suggesting that one would, that one would consider treatments or interventions that perhaps you wouldn't normally do based on the expectation of said treatment. One of the, so they give several examples, one of which was um, so spinal manipulation, mobilization, um, thoracic manipulation for, for things like neck pain. Um, and it's, you know, if, if the patient had gotten that before and they liked it, do you then, the question is, do you then consider it as a way to uh, maybe build rapport, build therapeutic alliance, quote unquote, your favorite, Derek, bridge, create a bridge to, to other things. One of, another example was traction, which has little to no evidence for efficacy. And uh, they suggest Perhaps it's it's a question of whether we consider adding those things in initially. And I'll read a, a quote here on that specifically. It says, furthermore, interventions without strong evidence-based support also may be justified. Traction generally is considered ineffective in the management of low back pain. However, a brief trial of traction may be appropriate in a patient who reports very high recovery expectations for traction as a result of attributing prior resolution of an episode of low back pain to treatment with traction. Mike, what yes. say you to I knew, I, knew, I assumed you were coming straight to me because I'm going to take a really hard line on this statement. And I literally wrote when I was reading through this paper, what? Get your shirt. If you, if, yeah, yeah. So we're, if, if you're questioning, if you're wondering. <laughs> um, it's got a shirt on that says hashtag no silly BS. Yeah, so that's obviously my clinic motto, and I stand by that. I mean, when I was reading through this paper, I wrote in the margins, I literally said, disagree, this is on us for inappropriate education. So I think if the standard is set that we build dependency on unnecessary, non-evidence-based interventions, then we're just perpetuating that possible dependency. And if we allow that to be the expectation that we need to bridge the gap with this um, non-efficacious treatment, then we run the risk of continuing dependency with it and we're not resetting a new expectation that, hey, this intervention is not necessary. And we're just giving the patient what they want. Um, and to me, that would be buying into their possibly ideal expectations versus their predictive expectations or even the normative expectations of what the standard of care should be. So unless we start taking hard lines on this and we start setting new expectations that these are unnecessary, then we're just going to keep perpetuating the silly bullshit that we've already been perpetuating in the physical medicine rehab field for quite some time, in my opinion. So I'm going to take a little more nuanced approach to this. And 
I, I agree from a clinical point of view that we should be driving towards things that actually have efficacy to them. But if one of the most paramount things to success, however we rate our outcomes for this, is meeting the patient's expectations, I'm disinclined to take a hard line out of the gate because it's it's going to be a discussion. And over time, I want to say X doesn't really hold any support, but I'm not going to open with that. And this gets into the sales portion of this and developing that therapeutic alliance. If they've been seeing a practitioner who's doing some silly bullshit, to use Mike's phrase, on them for four years and they really like that treatment, whatever it is, it's really hard to open up and say, well, this is absolute crap. It, you know, you have to say, well, if you've been seeing it for four years, we may want to take a little bit of a different route. If you still want to use that, fine. I'm just not going to be the provider who's going to do that. I have plenty of patients who use plenty of things that are ritualistic at best. And if they're getting relief out of it and it's they're paying for it out of their own pocket, keep doing you. And, you know, if, if we want to have that discussion out of it, then we can go there and uh, try and be open by patients. If you want to know my opinion on a treatment, I'm going to give it to you, but it's ultimately your decision to do with whatever advice I give you. So you do you. Yeah. I think it, it gets, I think we really have to talk about ethics at the end of the day too, especially coming like you kind of hit the nail on the head with the statement that, if they're paying for it and you're not the one disseminating it, but they're going out and doing it on their own, do you think that the ethics of the situation changes if you are the one charging for it versus them going out and doing it on their own? Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it's an interesting discussion and it's one that I've had with Joel before. And I think it's very easy as a practitioner who is trying to be evidence-based to take that hard line stance and say, yes, this is what I believe absolutely black and white, but you know, with everything, it's a gradient and a lot of where that line is, is contingent upon the patient. If I have someone who like vehemently believes in, you know, dog farts curing their low back pain, then I'm not going to open up with those are the worst things ever out of it. And they can go do that in their spare time, but I'm not going to bring my dog in and try and placate to them. Yeah. I think it's almost like exercise. Like it's gradient exposure to challenging uh, preconceived notions or, or previously set expectations. So it's not like on consult day, you debunk every single thing that they have bought into over the past 10 years but it's much more of as therapeutic alliance is built and they trust you more, you can have those conversations and say, well, this is kind of what the evidence is showing about this. You know, that's why I don't do it. Um, and that you're all, you're definitely welcome to go spend your money how you want. Just know that this may not necessarily be needed for the treatment of the issue that you're dealing with. Well, I think even to your point, even calling it exercise at times is yeah. not the best way of going about it. If we're going to talk semantics, because you know, if I go to my mother and say, you need to exercise three times a week, I can tell you that's not going to be a very successful treatment plan on my end, whether right. she needs to or not. And, and, you know, it's, hey, mom, we may need to get you moving around a little bit more and framing it through that. So <laughs> well, I was there saying, is a lot of nuance to the semantics of all of this. 
I was saying I was using graded exercise ex- approach as an example. Like you would grade how much bullshit you contradict um, exponentially, and you don't start really, really high on the, the spectrum on day one, but you kind of grade that exposure as you're dealing with them more and more. But yeah, I mean, we could even discuss that exercise is uh, also placebo-like expectancy effects for particular issues, especially chronic pain. Yeah, I didn't necessarily hear you guys say different, uh, take a different stance necessarily. I think that the initial stance was strong. And then when Derek, when you said a more nuanced, but I think, I think you guys are coming pretty much saying the same thing. I think you come at it probably very similarly. I, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they don't come in and say, well, what about traction? You're like, no, that's bullshit. (laughs) So I I think we're all saying the same thing because Derek, are you, the nuance is the nuance, but you're still not putting them on the traction table. Am I correct? Uh, 99% of the time. Okay. But I think for the listeners, like it's one of those things where it's easy to hear us say, well, debunk all BS. And then, then you're like, well, what do I do here? And, you know, we all must concede that we step, we put our toes in the water of the BS occasionally to placate a patient. I mean, and often, well, go ahead. And then I'll, yeah. No, go. It's, it really is. I think it needs stated explicitly that this isn't a black and white thing. There's always going to be some gradient to it. It's just where you draw the line. And I I think where I draw the line in discussing this with clinicians and where I draw the line in discussing this with patients are two different lines with clinicians. I would say it's, it's much more of a black and white discussion because I I don't want the perpetuation of this non-efficacious treatment that's predicated solely on expectations showing up on my Instagram feed or Facebook or, you know, or, or worse, screw my Instagram feed, my patient's Instagram feed. And now they're coming in thinking that they need X, Y, Z and something's counter mutated and, you know, their left ear is higher than the right. Yeah. And that's a different story to perpetuate than once the patient already comes in believing all that. And now we have to have a discussion. So I, I would say clinician to clinician, my line is much more black and white than clinician to patient. Yeah. And that's what I was saying with like, with the patient, it takes time. I can't, with the clinician, they have the knowledge base for us just to be like, yeah, that's bullshit. And here's what the evidence does or doesn't say. Um, and preferably we don't want to breed dependency with our patients on those modalities or interventions with the patient. It's multiple conversations. Um, unless I'm consulting on a case that I think I'm not going to have a lot of interaction with in the future, then there's a good possibility I go shotgun approach and I just knock everything out at once, especially if I don't think I'm going to see them again. But if it's someone I know I'm going to have time to build a relationship with, and they say, well, I do X, Y, or Z, I'll be like, well, that's interesting. You know, we'll talk about that more and then address it again at a later date. Um, but I think, yeah, we've got to start setting the expectations differently than what we currently have been doing in the field, and that uh, that's going to be the only way that we alter the current paradigm that we have in place. I think it's important to note, too, and they discussed this in the paper, in both papers, actually, that expectations can be changed. So... And this also goes back to the conversation that we had way back when in episode one, talking about patient preferences and, you know, the, the mis, misconstruing that as if the patient, we should take the preferences into account as in, it, it's almost like an equal, we're equal. If they, if they want something, you know, it's, 
then we should take that as, as at face value. And it's, it can win. We're still kind of the experts here. And so even in that, you know, I get Derek, what you're saying is there's no, there's no absolute. So you say 99% of the time, like I totally get that. You leave yourself open to that one case, but you know, and, and I know you're all, you're good at reshaping things, but it's, if words are that powerful, then I mean, words are that powerful. Like it's almost like fake it till you make it. If you're confident in respectfully setting your boundaries as a clinician and you're, you're comfortable with explaining why something is not going to happen. I think people are, will listen. I, you know, I, it's very rare that I, I've had somebody that come in with a set expectation. It's not rare that they come in with a set expectation from past experiences that happens all the time. It's rare that they don't, that they don't listen to me um, after we've had the discussion, because I try to come at it, I come at it very, in a very similar way that you guys do. I hear them and I make sure that they understand that I hear them, that I, I, I basically just repeat back to what they said. You've gotten this in the past that, you know, this was your belief. Totally understand that we're, we're likely going to go in this direction because of X, Y, and Z. You can also spin it like you're in my office. Clearly something's not working. There's, there's always that hope there's always that, but it's, it's rare that they, they, they wall off. You know, I, I think yeah. that people are, you're not very good at communicating. You need, you need to in, improve your communication skills. If, if people are putting up walls. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just think the, the one big point there is, is expectations can be changed. And then obviously that, that may not happen in the first 10 minutes and that may not happen in the first session, but you know, it's kind of on us. Mike, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that point should be hammered home uh, really, really well for the listeners is if you are finding people putting up walls or you're getting um, kind of a backfire effect, the second you start talking to someone, then we need to work on our communication skills because if they've been doing all of these other things for X number of years and now they're still in your office, clearly something is not working and I'm not willing to, um, and I don't mind taking this hardline approach, I'm not going to do something that I don't have enough evidential support to say that I should be doing it. And that's how I look at patient treatment. If there's not supportive evidence saying that if I don't do this with a patient, that I'm sacrificing my patient's care, then I'm not going to do the intervention. And that's kind of how I approach it. And I, I think that we just need to get a lot better at having very difficult conversations with patients and being the first voice of reason that maybe they've heard thus far in their care that, hey, you don't necessarily need that. And we don't have evidence to say that you need that. And I also say very similar things in that if you want to do this on your own dollar, on your own time, you do you. I say that too, Derek. Do you. Live yeah. your life. Yeah. Y'all put up. Um, but I, but I think it's also important to emphasize that that cannot, what we're talking about, what, you know, me and this patient, our, our modifications, our, um, stress management or behavioral modifications that we're talking about need to be the priority because I think sometimes people forget that when, as soon as they walk out of your clinic door, everything makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah. This plan sounds great. As soon as they leave your door. As soon as they step out, they forget half the shit that you talked about. It's like it's like driving a brand new car off the lot depreciates by however much, just right off the, like the first four miles. But they forget that, and then they start to sink back into their old habits. So if you don't see that person for another two or three weeks, 
you know, you come back and, and they've like forgotten everything. What was that one thing you said? And you're like, that's the most important part. So I think it's really important to know. It's like, yes, you can do these things on your time, but you have to prioritize what we talked about first. Yeah. Because I, just because they start to shift into their old patterns and they say, well, it's kind of a 50, 50 thing. I just want to, it feels good or it's comfortable or it's what they know. Um, so priorities just need to be set. I, I think that's just an, an important deal. Um, I also make the point that, and maybe I don't make this point to everybody, but I, I try to is say, if you do those things, and we're talking about those things being what they've done in the past, what they're comfortable with, that's fine. It's probably not going to have a negative effect as we're going to be doing all of these other things to manage stress. The expectation, though, is that you feel the need for those things less and less. And I, and I also say, but you know what, if you just quit those things, cold Turkey, if you just stopped, that would also not negatively affect our right. plan. So just, I just want you to know that, that you don't need that for us to, you know, achieve our goals. So they start to just kind of shift that, like get off at, um, becoming dependent on those things. We start to just, you know, so you give them the choice, like you're giving them options. I can keep doing it. Okay. No big deal. I can also start to wean off of it. I can also just not do it anymore. Okay. I can make that decision. I, and you know, but I think that's huge. Like some people may have never heard, um, that you don't have to do X, Y, or Z for this to alter the issue that you're dealing with. Right. And the often thing, like one of the things we always are regularly hear is, Oh, like hamstrings can be tight and that is a correlate to low back pain. So you need to go stretch your hamstrings every single day. Well, somebody's been doing that for 10 years and they're still talking about chronic low back pain that they're having and they don't understand what's going on. And it's like, well, pain's not this, that so simple, A, and obviously you don't have to stretch your hamstrings every single day. So the patient's been losing time and effort and as well as frustration mentally trying to figure out why are they still dealing with chronic low back pain and why isn't it getting any better if they're stretching their hamstrings, which is what another clinician told them to do. So you may be the first clinician that's told them, Hey, that's not really necessary, and we don't really have evidence to support. You need to go out and do this. I think part of the issue is we are so inundated with the marketing of pain that an issue is societally we assume that as soon as something hurts, the expectation is we need to get it looked at. And a lot of things do get better on their own. And when you start having that association that X happens, so I expect Y to be the next step in this, then we start getting the things like if you look at the research for ACLs, the major reason ACL reconstructions occur is to increase the probability of returning to level one sports. So if you're not trying to return to level one sport, do you really need to have an ACL reconstruction? We now have studies saying that probably don't need to. Now, let's look at it from where the expectations are set. If any one of us watches any sports show, every athlete who tears their ACL has a reconstruction. So societally, we just assume that if you tear your ACL, the step is to go get your ACL reconstructed. Whereas, you know, if you follow certain people on social media, they all have this modality that they think cures everything. So that's setting that expectation. Well, if that modality doesn't have any efficacy to it or whatever technique it is, then you now have people expecting something that they may not really need. Right. 
And, and that's where the issue starts coming in because we have this whole build your brand movement that goes on. But if your brand is inundated with silly bullshit to circle back to Mike's phrase, then I would argue you're more part of the problem than the solution. Yeah. I, Derek, you just hate money. <laughs> I do. I, I, well, that's Scott, that's a whole nother podcast, but, um, I think that's a huge point is reframing the issue too, that you originally started off by saying that, um, somebody gets pained and they think that because of X, Y should follow, which is some type of a treatment. And yeah, the, a ton of things get better on their own, a lot of things. And so I think part of this is reframing the patient's perspective that we set the expectation that pain is part of life and it's a natural thing that we have to deal with and that you shouldn't freak out the second you feel pain about something. And you should kind of give this time. We all are aware of natural regression to the mean that occurs for a lot of things. And so that means that when pain does happen, maybe we start setting the expectations of self-management. And this is how you can take care of yourself. And then if this doesn't get any better, come see me and we can talk about how we can get you on a better path. Well, and the regression to the mean is an interesting one. In chronic cases can be a little bit more nebulous because I think that there are maybe multiple regressions to the mean within their period of, you know, it could be 10 years of, of low back pain where they've had up and down, up and down, up and down. Cyclical. But yeah, it, to go back to the example that they use in the article about traction, the very last part of it is, you know, if the patient has very high expectations for traction as a result of prior resolution of an episode of low back pain, well, and that's where maybe there's an education there where traction may have just happened to be during the time that you were having one of your natural regressions to the mean right. and can have that conversation. And then you could also probably pry into their history and say, did you ever, had that ever happened before where some, where you got something or something happened and you got better and they started to say, Oh, well, you know, it was like three years ago when I tried this and then five years ago when I was trying that and like, Oh, the same pattern, right? So we're starting to see like that might not actually matter. And this is just kind of like normal ebbs and flows of what you got going on. And, and so they start to understand that a little bit better um, because it is less black and white, like the cute, with acute incidents, we can definitely say, you know, this is most likely going to get better. Yeah. We just got to not get in the way. Yeah. Uh, but it's, oh, you know, there's still that relevance. And they also, with these questions, like I'm, I'm sure we can all agree that the, we're glad that the researchers are bringing these things up, but certainly not a shot yeah. at them. They're asking the questions and they even say, you know, quote, we must be clear that we are not advocating deception. Um, and they give, three specific factors that have to be considered when you're, when you're having this kind of thought process as a clinician, one of which is the intention uh, to maximize expectations is to help the patient. Obviously it needs to help the patient. So Derek, back to your point, it needs to not be about padding your ego or getting Instagram likes or your bottom line. Those things have are, are part of the puzzle, but ultimately it's about the patient in front of us. Number two they state the literature suggests an analgesic, analgesic effect related to expectation um, may be enhanced with a positive instruction set. So, like um, the words that we the words that we use needs to be considered essentially, but not in a deceptive way. And so, in the above example that they gave in those placebo studies, they said that 
the agent that you have just been given has been significantly has been shown to significantly reduce pain in some patients. So they italicize some. So it's like, just be, just be easy with your words. You know, if, yeah. if it's true that if that thoracic manipulation has been shown in studies, looking at neck pain, that neck pain has reduced. And one of the inter- interventions given was thoracic manipulation efficacy question. Yes. But there, there is that. So I, but at the same time, that's then we can start to spin these alternative narratives. So I think, I just think it's a real slippery slope. These questions need to be asked and it's an interesting discussion, but yeah. What are your guys' thoughts, uh, just to be devil's advocate here a little bit? What if we started doing whatever intervention we wanted to and we were just honest with the patient and said, hey, this is placebo like expectancy effects. We have evidence demonstrating this is no better than placebo. Um, are we more comfortable as a field for uh, physical medicine rehab to go that route and say, then we should be okay letting clinicians do whatever they want as long as they're prefacing the expectation that this is completely placebo? Well, I think this study would say that you're probably digging your own hole if you do that because if, if expectations actually have that analgesic effect, then there needs to be careful semantics put into it to try and head yourself towards that effect. Isn't there some newer evidence, Derek, showing that even even if people know it's a placebo? Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of studies related to that. But you know, you look at there's studies where you have people with post operative pain and they have the medication just put in an IV and administered and versus a physician coming in and actually administering the IV, the medication into the IV then going in and think those patients have a greater pain reduction than the ones who never saw the medication go in. So there's a lot of theater to it. And I don't know another way of saying it, but it really is setting yourself up to have the most advantageous part. So yes, you need to ethically disclose that you know, people get better from placebos, but, and I think this is that discussion of when is it okay? Cause if it's shown to have an analgesic effect, then you want to use it, but you just can't do it with deception. But we also have well, fair enough studies just saying setting expectations is an analgesic effect. So if I can just use my words, I'm much, to me, it's like, well, why do I need to use everything else if I can just use words? Well, but I would venture a guess that your words come with a thought behind your body position when having the discussion and how many of your words you use. And, and, you know, there's a lot of placement that goes into it. Like I always try and be diligent whenever I'm doing the subjective to sit below my patient because I, I want them to be the authoritative figure at that point because they're telling me their story. But when we transition to the objective, I try and be the bigger figure because I want there to be kind of an unintentional handoff between where they're in control of what's going on. And now it's my turn to look. And, you know, it's something I'm very conscious of and, you know, being, being a bigger guy, it works out easier for me as well, but it's it's part of the show. Yeah. I think there's a lot of contextual, contextual effects. Um, It sounds like what we're talking about that go into this. Well, Mike, are you asking to, it's instead of us just kind of like, worrying about the theatrics of things and having to kind of play that game. Why don't we just say F it and tell them this could be a placebo. It could not do it and see what happens and move on. Kind of like, so that's almost, a, yeah. The process. 
that's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, at the end of the day, I think what we're trying to do, at least in my mind, is alter the paradigm that's currently set in physical medicine and rehab. So if we're not going to get people to say, like, oh, I probably shouldn't do this because it's no better than placebo, what if we got them to at least start changing their narrative to the patient to this is no better than placebo? And maybe that's the first step that we get in the field to start altering the paradigm. Well, if that's if it was that easy, that would be awesome. But the counter argument to that is why don't we just give patients a progressive resistance exercise program on a sheet of paper and say, go do this piece? Because we know the exercise has that effect. Right. But it's it's way more nuanced than saying, uh, well, I can do it with these few words or I can do it with these few exercises. It, it gets back to that ultimate uh, thing that makes people's hair on the back of their neck stand up. It depends. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, doesn't it come down here to just informed consent and having them presenting them with information to where they can make the choice? Because I kind of like I kind of see where you're coming from. You know, if I if I say, listen, we can you, you're coming in with with neck pain and say we, we have choices here. We can do nothing. If we do nothing, um, this may happen. This may not. You may get better regression to the mean, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we can do things like certain manual therapy interventions, but just know that these interventions may, the mechanism at which they work may be more of a placebo than a specific effect. Uh, and, or we can do all of these different positional lifestyle modifications, boom, boom, boom. And so Derek, to your point, are you saying that if it is kind of lined up like that, and just like said, just straight off, just straight off the bat, real black and white, that we're kind of missing the benefits of the theatrics. So I don't know that. Yeah, I'll give you the benefit, but I would say the multifactorial nature. And, and where I would defend that is I would go into the second paper we're going to discuss, GERTS, the patient expectations for management of non-chronic cancer pain, a systematic review, and when they state. Up to 79% of chronic non-cancer pain patients believe that their pain is inadequately treated. And that's that's huge. That says that patients don't think that their needs are being addressed. Do you think, that, so, Derek, that part of that problem is that we're in such a hurry to fix things that we're not actually being empathetic to the patient, like we're not sitting down and listening and having conversations, that we're just so quick to make a diagnosis and then fix it for them? that we're missing well, I, out on that? I, I would give you that, but I would say everything you just said to me, you're factoring in a little bit of a nuanced theatrical approach to your discussion with the patient. But, it, but, it's, but then it still comes down to just the words. I guess I'm hard-pressed to follow up the words with some type of non-specific manual intervention or, or modality I feel like just listening and hearing them and then giving them options and being honest about the options. I, I feel like you can steer the ship to have them make the choice that you feel is also the most efficacious one. Yeah. You know, like you, I, I entirely agree with both of you on this. Like I, I'm not busting out the passive modalities. Oh, fuck you, Derek. Oh, it's man. done now. We're riding your ass off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the same token, like it's, it's much more gray than just saying it is just the words. Cause that's the same as saying it is just the exercise. 
yeah, that's an effect, but like at its base, most distilled rate, that's correct. But when you really look at it, it's very, very contingent upon a lot of factors that go into it. And yeah. And that, that's the point I'm trying to drive home. It's not this like specific algorithm. That's like check. Yes, no, go ABC out of it. Right. It's, much more, okay, well, this happened, so I need to go here. Then they said this, so I need to go here and ask this question. And and it's much, there's much more gradient to this. It's a process. Yeah. Are we going to go on to, before I start getting into this paper, and Quinn scolds me, are we going on to Gord's paper now? Not yet. Last thing, because I want to talk about their how you how they're the suggestions that they give on measuring expectations in the clinical setting um so this is kind of in the discussion can, of can, the bioloski paper yes before you get there because i felt like this is an important point i had started on this paper is mechanisms of expectation they listed out five mechanisms of how expectations affect the patient um, yeah. i think we probably should cover those so like the first one they said that it promotes a physiological response um and what they mean by that is that um, it's placebo-based in the literature is how it's studied. So based on how the expectations are set with an intervention, how it can maximize analgesia, even if it is a placebo. Um, so that's the physiological response. The second was increasing motivation to participate in a designated program. So just trying to intrinsically get buy-in, which Derek was talking about earlier, the cell with it. Um, I'm seeing if there's anything else with that. Uh, they talk a lot about the reward-based system with um, the increased motivation. Um, the third one was conditioning an individual to focus on specific aspects of a disorder while ignoring others. So what they were looking at for that, um, so they say the expectation also may condition an individual to focus on specific aspects of a musculoskeletal pain condition while ignoring others. For example, flooded L to study the influence of preoperative expectations on postoperative outcomes following uh, prostatectomy for benign prostate hypertrophy, higher preoperative expectations corresponded to a greater likelihood of reporting, quote-unquote, feeling better following surgery, even when controlling for symptoms. Um, interestingly, preoperative expectations were not predictive of postoperative symptoms or overall health. And the authors eventually concluded that it may not directly, expectations may not directly change outcome, but rather result in more optimistic view of the outcome that does occur. So consequently, expectations may not directly alter outcomes related to a disorder, but instead change the individual's perception of the outcomes with a more positive focus. Um, so I thought that was pretty important. I know in the next paper we'll talk about how negative expectations can dramatically influence the outcome. The next one um, was number four, changing a patient's understanding of the disorder. So it's just, again, an, an educational uh, education standpoint. And then the last one was um, mediating anxiety to decre- decrease or alleviate pain which I know all of us uh, tend to be proponents of that. Um, the, the still from Derek, he uses the, the acronym Calm the Fuck Down. So just trying to globally decrease anxiety symptoms to help with outcomes. So I just thought we should cover those those five mechanisms. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's that one point you made on number three in regards to satisfaction may not actually equal the outcome. Like, they could still be jacked up, but they're satisfied... Yeah. Or, or vice versa, like outcomes are good, but they're not satisfied. You know, it's interesting. The, 
As far as measuring it, we talked about how there's not a validated outcome measure. There's not a questionnaire that's, as you said there, just so multifactorial, it's hard to have that. But they do offer some suggestions in the discussion, and they say, first and foremost, uh, we should we should consider negative expectations as well. And so whatever, let's say you're doing a zero to 10 scale or something like that, where a zero is, you know, what's your expectation for for your plan of care, a zero is no change and a 10 is complete resolution. Well, you've not taken into account negative change. So what they're saying is perhaps something very simple, like a three item scale where you ask them uh, if they expect their pain to get worse, stay the same or improve over the, over the course of care. Um, something you can do. And this is also in regards to their predicted expectation and also their the normative expectation or their ideal. So what they think is going to happen and also what they want to happen okay, they are not the same thing. And so you can ask the same question for both of those things and be very clear about that as another point they say. If you're measuring predicted expectations, then you need to word it such quote, we would like you to indicate what you think will occur, not what you want to occur. And then you can ask them what they want to occur as a separate subset of questions. And so if you want, if you want to get some quantitative data, just you can put a scale to it and just be consistent. Is that, is that's their, that's their recommendation until something uh, more validated kind of comes out here. Oh, and also uh, time. And be be specific about the the sub the time of care too. So they recommend that a question be for expectations at the end of four weeks of physical therapy or rehab or whatever. What do you expect will be the pain associated with your low back condition? So give you know give them a kind of a contextual timeline, not just what do you think it'll be at the end of this whole thing when they've had pain for 10, 15 years. So you know put something to it because what if they have had pain for ten years? And then they answer your four-week question with, oh, I expect a complete resolution of my symptoms. Now you're thinking like, okay, maybe their expectations are a little skewed to the reality of this yeah. thing. And that's a conversation you can have as well. Um, and then they can, and then they say, finally, maybe even put something uh, functional, like context to function or to one of their goals. So not just at the end of physical therapy, how's your pain going to be, but What's your expectation with your ability to play golf at the end of four weeks of this stent of, of rehab? So, you know, just just some things to think about. Um, and, and then they just recommend just be consistent, you know, start getting some getting some data. Just get used to gauging these things until we find a better way to, to quantify it. So we'll move on to the next paper. Any final thoughts on this paper, measuring expectations, anything in that realm? No, I think the big takeaway from that was just that we need to start considering it. And um, even though we don't have a ton of supportive evidence from a measurement standpoint, it's pretty simple to implement these and start getting a perspective on how your patient views their expectations for treatment and outcomes. So you just even just asking them is a step in the right direction. And the second paper that we looked at is a systematic review titled Patient Expectations for Management of Chronic Non-Cancer Pain a systematic review. Um, lead author there is Jose Gertz. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And this is from the Journal of Health Expectations. That's good. From 2017. And 
this is this was kind of a this is a cool review here. So not you know the the Bielowski paper was eight years old, it's 2010, and here we are, fast forward 2017, and not much has changed in the realm of there's not a whole lot of evidence to specify how to measure expectations or really anything beyond they matter, but we don't to what extent we don't know, and we know there's a lot of factors to to take into consideration. But they they got about they got 23 articles that, that met their inclusion criteria, um, 18 of which were quantitative and five were qualitative, which actually was kind of cool for this because you got to see some quotes from the from the patients. Um, but I'll let you guys just kind of like initial thoughts on this systematic review. Derek, what do you think about this paper? I, I like this paper. I thought it had some very good points of discussion. The consideration of expectations as probabilities and predicted expectations, like I, I think that is excellent. Uh, I am all about probabilistic thinking. And I think we dichotomize into, are you going to get better? Yes, no. Instead of, well, what percentage would you have to get better in order to consider this successful? And that's a different question in and of itself. And you think about like our zero to 10 pain scale, it's a very interesting way of looking at it because the only way you have had a successful outcome if your goal is pain-free is to get to zero. One through 10, you're in pain. So, you know, 91% of the scale is painful and then (laughs) there's one option for no pain. So looking at things in terms of probability, like I think some of it too is, is the societal expectation that we're not going to be in pain and pain is a natural thing. Like it, it's going to occur every now and then, but realizing that you're going to get over it or having that expectation that you will get over it is an integral part of the process. And I think too often what happens is, people get stuck in this. I'm not going to get over this. Right. Mike, what'd you think about this review article? I thought it was good. Um, I like this one a lot. They talked about some things that I hadn't really considered, like the expectancy disconfirmation paradigm. Um, they talked about structure process and outcomes of care and how that's relevant to predicted expectations. Um, there's a lot of stuff we could, we could spend a lot of time on this paper. Um, especially because although I think I intuitively considered negative expectations as a potential um, thing that affects outcomes, I never really thought about the patient going into care thinking, ah, oh, this isn't going to help me anyways, what's the point? And then I've recently read a couple of papers related to like um, subacromial uh, impingement syndrome that talks about how based on what the physician, the first primary physician interacting with the patients, how expectations can get set then that confounds care, basically how their narrative explains, like with subacromial impingement syndrome, if there's a bony protuberance pressing on tendon or muscle in that area, then the patient goes into uh, rehab thinking like, what am I doing here? Because this is a bony abnormality. This isn't going to help me. So that's a negative expectation just going into it. I hadn't really put all that together until I read this paper. Yeah, I liked it too. And they define expectations as a strong belief that something will happen or be the case. And they got, they kind of broke it down into subsets of expectations. Now they have the same types of expectations as in the Bieloski paper, very similar, where 
kind of a one, two, three deal where ideal expectations are what the patient values or wants normative is what should happen and predicted expectations is what will happen. But then they break it down even further with these, the studies that they looked at in the review with 23 in total, where with, with certain constructs like structure, where patients, they look, they look at like the setting, um, the characteristics of the building, the accessibility, the availability of, of diagnostic equipment, the staff. And then they looked at the process, how efficient was the system? Did the patient get to move in and move out? Were there, you know, were expectations negative or positive from now or what were they going in? And then outcomes, uh, obviously the effects of healthcare was, is probably what we think of more traditionally with, with expectations, but they took into account kind of the whole system, which I thought was kind of cool. Now, only 23 studies in total that they included. And so when you start breaking down into a whole bunch of subsets, you don't, sometimes you don't have a whole lot of studies for each subset, which is, you know, one of the limitations, but it's a, it's a cool way to think about it. Cause then you start thinking things in a more, just as a system as a whole, like you don't think about because it was hard, like this, the glass door of the clinic opened the wrong way and had a tough time getting in the building, how that can set up, that set you negatively for the rest of the experience. You don't think yeah. about that stuff, you know, yeah. or if, if the, if the patient feels that there's not enough, there's not enough doctors on staff. Um, Cause they actually showed that one of the things in the structure expectation was, was the facility staffed adequately and that helped positive expectations. So just things that we don't think about. Yeah, I thought that was interesting to build off of the structure expectations. Um, to read from it, they said part of this was patients expressed the desirability of fellow patient involvement in chronic pain management service, mostly to support the patients in their contact with the professionals and achieve validation of their pain problem. Um, further, structure exp- uh, expectations were desirability, efficient flow of patients through the system, and need for accessibility, for example, parking spaces nearby and uh, variable opening times of the clinic. So I thought it was interesting, like parking spaces, they want to interact with other patients throughout the process, and in essence, just to be validated that the issue that they're dealing with is a real issue. So what's funny is I, I consider those things even in how we've set up our clinic here in that I want multiple patients in the clinic at once, especially like there's nothing greater to me than having like four patients in clinic that are in different stages of the same rehab, because I love nothing more than when like a two week ACL starts talking to a 12 week ACL, who's over starting to do some cutting drills and the two week ACL is just starting it out. And the 12 week ACL is like, you're going to get here. I thought the same thing. Like, Like, man, my job is half done. This is awesome. Yeah, sets expectations for you. Like, you don't even have yeah. to do anything. Or, you know, they look over and they see the person with that scar on their tibia going ass to grass with 245. And you're like, well, he started with an empty bar just like you're going to. And, like, you get that whole expectation set that, hey, this is where we're going. And they get to actually see it. Because especially now that I'm more in the youth pediatric side of it, it's – you know, when they get hurt and they're shut down from their sport, they don't really know what's going to happen. So getting around some other athletes and, and seeing that they're going to be okay is, is a very 
good thing to really establish from just a visual point of view. And like you walk into our clinic and I share with a biomechanics lab. So the first thing you see is all the cameras up on the wall. So like, oh yeah, you know, the video game stuff, we can do that here. And from the pediatric adolescent side of it, that's an awesome show to have as soon as you get from walking into clinic. Derek, do you, with those um, examples that you just gave, do the patients also talk to each other or is it just their ACLs that talk to each other? <laughs> just the ACLs. <laughs> they actually anthropomorphize just their ACLs. And they have very, it's the personalities of a hamstring graft are just amazing. Pretty, pretty horrible. <laughs> okay. I thought I would just throw that in there. No, I, I think that's, yeah. So I don't, the way my clinic is set up, I think is similar to yours, Mike, where we're the only clinician, but there's a gym yeah. there. People are always working out. So I, you know, now I don't know if that makes the person feel like some FOMO and like they feel left out because there's people in there working out, but you try to, no, I think the community aspect is huge, you know, and then maybe that's kind of what they're getting at. Um, you know, reading any, anything else that jumped out at you on this one? Um, so I think this one just had a lot of very good discussion points and for the predicted expectations, they said predicted expectations are cognitive, realistic, and anticipated. And I, I think that bears a little bit of discussion in that having a true discussion on realistic expectations and making sure that you and the patient are both on the same page and where you're aiming. So, and it's something you have to think about, you have to discuss. And yeah. then the, the going into the value expectations are attitudes regulated by feelings, emotions, and affections. And a lot of the stuff like you can't really control as much. Like if you walk in and it's, you're already upset for the day, you know, it's in Florida, I used to always, uh, I'll, I'll use the word joke, but it's probably not correct. Um, that during finals week, I could pretty much count on all of my students coming in and having more aches and pains than they did before finals week started. Mm. So they're sleep deprived. They're worried about their tests. They're, they're emotionally wrecked that week. So it's no wonder that we have an uptick in pain. And then as soon as it's done, it goes back to normal. Yeah. And the, they also talk with process expectations. Cause again, they were, they were like making all these subsets of process expectations being just kind of, what is your expectation of the system of having to go through the system? And they had four studies that in which they looked at process expectations and and then they say explanation or improved understanding of the pain problem was expressed as a necessity. This yeah. is by the, by the patient yeah. expresses. They want, they, they want to understand, which I thought was kind of cool. Cause it's like, Oh, nice. You know, that's what we're talking about here. That's it's a like, huge pain science talking point. Yeah, totally. And then it goes on to say validation or acknowledgement of the pain problem was expressed mostly as a normative expectation. So what that means is patients think that that should happen. They should be validated or acknowledged of their problem. That's part of the, that should be part of the healthcare system, which yes, we, so and to, to me, that means we need to listen to them and we need to hear them, validate them in the sense of 
of understanding or at least getting them to feel that we understand where they're coming from. Um, not necessarily giving them what they want from an intervention standpoint, but I thought that was a pretty cool point. And then also lastly, and to get a proper diagnosis was stated as an ideal expectation, not a predicted. Yeah. Yeah. And then with Derek, because when you said like ideal, you've kind of uh, pointed out that this study shows a little discrepancy between predicted expectation and ideal. Whereas and we're going to get into this, a higher predicted expectation seemed to be correlated with better outcomes, meaning what they think is going, if they think they're going to have a good time and do well, that they end up doing that. But I, if their ideal expectations were high, that didn't correlate. So if they, or if they felt entitled, because in this paper, they actually use ideal and entitled synonymously, which I thought was funny, but they essentially, if you feel that you're entitled for great outcomes, then they actually showed no different or, you know, no correlation to higher outcomes. So in this respect, going back to this, a proper diagnosis was stated as, stated as an ideal expectation. So maybe going back to some discussions that we've had in the past, not to say that diagnosis is not important, but yeah. perhaps prognosis is a little bit more important. Um, as long as they understand their pain problem, they may not need a specific diagnosis. tissue joint diagnosis. Now, of course, save for like medical diagnoses that need medical attention. We're talking about kind of from a rehab standpoint, but I just thought that was interesting for, um, uh, sorry for just for the listeners. I just wanted to reread what predicted expectations are. So everyone just like under, cause we were throwing around a couple of types of expectations, but predicted expectations, according to this paper, are beliefs about what will actually happen are likely to, are likely to result from personal experience, reported experiences of others, or other sources of knowledge, such as in the media. We could also be the source that's setting the predicted expectation. But that's just what they think is actually going to happen, whereas the ideal is what their hopes, their aspirations are towards what may happen. Yeah. I'm just, and again, I'm reading through... Feel free to say words. <laughs> well, one of the, the big ones that I have circled just before the discussion page, um, it, it says, within each setting of care delivery, that is primary care, CAM, surgery, rehabilitation, pain centers, most chronic non-cancer pain patients expected pain relief. However, some patients did not expect pain relief, but expressed the desire and need for physical improvement and being able to walk with the grandkids, for instance, or do daily living chores without limitations. Some patients express the need to learn to cope with CNCP, chronic non-cancer pain, or to learn tools for better control of the complaints. So I think this kind of speaks towards not only, like, obviously, if you're seeing any of us as clinicians, I, you can almost always assume one of the first things people want is pain reduction. Otherwise, they're probably not seeing us. But I think a huge part that we need to make sure that we put on the patient is the functional improvement side of things. Um, what are you not able to do and what you want to be able to do or almost, is almost always a question that I ask on consult day. Um, so making this more about not only pain management on the self self care side, but also getting them to do what they want to be able to do also is important. 
Uh, I think being explicit with all that is, is good. And to circle back, we discussed, um, I think at the end of the Bialowski paper, the negative expectation side of it. And I think this is somewhere where we need to be diligent as clinicians in our semantics as well, because we had the paper come out last year from Setchell, the individual's explanation for the persistent or recurrent low back pain across sectional study. And, and the results of this were interesting. It was to quote, we found the individuals discussed persistent low back pain is due to the body being like a broken machine, permanent, complex, and very negative. And then the killer sentence out of this is most participants indicated that they learned these beliefs from health professionals. So if we're really discussing sitting expectations and 89% of this cohort said they learned these problems, these negative connotations from healthcare practitioners, like that's um, shitty. (laughs) I don't know another way to say that. Like the fact that, we as healthcare practitioners are putting these negative beliefs on our patients and setting those expectations. It's, it's, it's damning to us saying we're doing a good job and we need to be diligent with our words and realize the weight of what everything has in the way our patients are going to view the world and telling people that they're broken or, you know, whatever insert mad lib of polysyllabic bullshit is going on with them. Or, you know, if, put the little X next to whatever exercise on Instagram because your spine's going to explode if you do it that way. Like we are not solutions oriented at that point. We're problems oriented and just imparting all of these problems onto our patient is it's awful. (laughs) Like it's expectations carry a large amount of weight. I think both of these papers would really disclose that not to mention a host of others that show basically your view is what shapes the world. And we're telling all these people that they're broken or they need some modality or, you know, whatever's going to happen to them. Like we have a lot of power with our words as clinicians and especially like, Quinn, you and I, physical therapy has moved to this doctoral profession. Mike Cairo has been doctoral forever. But if if we're really going to assume that title, we need to own it and take responsibility for our own actions. And if our own actions are disclosing that we're screwing up patients, damn, that's all all I can say. Well, and it's so the big to ducktail on that in the discussion on this review article you've we've already touched on kind of the dichotomy or the differentiation between value expectations or ideals and predict expectations or more realistic and that's how kind of how they spin it so they get the numbers here when we ask if you ask for the desired level of pain after treatment so if the patient's value what they want, they wished up for up to a 98% relief in pain. This is chronic pain. So essentially people were wishing for 100% resolution, which did not correlate very well with outcomes when you looked at that high of an expectation with clinical outcomes. But when they are asked, what do you expect the treatment to do? The patients reported far more realistic pain reductions of 50%, which is our predicted expectation, which did have 
uh, correlation to better outcomes. So to me, it, it's really about spinning realistic expectations, especially in the case of chronic pain, where if somebody's coming to you with, with 10 years of pain, to promise them resolution over the course of care may be setting them up for failure, but perhaps then spinning it in a way to say we're going to be much better at managing this and throwing goals from a functional standpoint, like things that you'll be able to do that you're not able to do now, these types of things, rather than just promising complete pain reduction, even though, like Mike, you said, they may be coming to you because they think pain is their problem. If they think that, then it is, you know, not question their, their perceptions, but those values can be shifted, you know, just like the expectations. Yeah. And so I think that these, I think this review article specifically is cool because it's starting to quantify these things. Um, well, they even yeah. say too, like going back to the patient coming in to see for CQ for pain. Um, they even say empirical studies have demonstrated a positive association between acceptance and successful adaptation to chronic pain. So reframing it that there's an acceptance level to pain that you're dealing with. Um, and I've heard Derek said this too, like also, like you said, Quinn, just celebrating the small victories. Like you couldn't walk to your mailbox, which is, you know, 50 feet away. And now we've got you walking to your mailbox and back home. That may not seem huge, but it is. It's celebrating small victories functionally with patients as well. And then setting predicted expectations for the future. Yeah. Anything else on this paper? No, I, I think that's a very good paper. It's yeah, it like brings that. to light a lot of discussions that need to be had, and, and some of them being uncomfortable for us as practitioners. But that's how we grow is having those uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I would say this. Derek, is, yeah, I was just going to say it's, it's a top paper. Like if I were to compile a list thus far. Uh, into this year, what are we in March of papers that should be read by clinicians? This would definitely be on my list. Well, and we decided to do this podcast. We didn't have this paper, Mike. You found it, right? Yeah. After we had decided to do this to do this subject, so good on you, man. Yeah. <laughs> good sir. Old PubMed coming through. Here you go, um, Derek. You had a little case that we were going to discuss briefly, and just maybe try to put some context. The back. Can you describe that yeah. for us? So, you know, this whole thing has been on setting expectations. So let's try and make it a little concrete. So if we had an athlete, 36 year old male, who's a CrossFitter, been doing it for about six months and decides he wants to do the open. And in 18.2, he has some low back pain come out of, well, he comes to you and now he wants to participate in 18.3. And so what are we going to do out of that for our setting our expectations? How severe is he? So this is acute, no his, no prior history. No history, no ridiculous symptoms. He got an ache, midline, low back pain, no red flags. Let's make it straightforward. There's nothing medically complex about this. How's unloaded range of motion? Let's just say he, he doesn't close. like going into extension. Just with body weight, like can't stand yeah, up. Just body weight. Back. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think the first would be setting the expectation of what our time frame looks like. Like if he comes in with the expectation, I want to go do 18.3 next week, but I can't even get you to stand up and extend. 
um, that's probably a new expectation that needs to get set that that's unlikely that we can get you into 18.3, especially if we want to look long term towards the safety of you being able to be an athlete in the future. Is he a scaled? Is he a scaled athlete? Um, is he hitting as described? Or is he let's say it's RX. Yeah, he's pretty new to the sport, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of a that, that can be a selling point right there. I, depending on how thick skinned people are, you know, you can kind of spin things different ways. But it's like you can be like, listen, dude, you know, you probably weren't going to win the gold medal this year, yeah. um, and it's like at, at this point, you you've got choices. You know, you've always got choices. You've ruled out, Derek, you said, you, you know, you've ruled out any nasty stuff. At this point, you're prolonging your healing timeline, you know, by continuing on. But let's just say nothing catastrophic would come out of it. You're just going to be towing the line. You know, it's going to be like enough time to, to probably knock down your pain just enough to get blasted again by the next workout. And then again and again and again. So you're just going to be riding this wave, dude. And probably not going to be performing at your best anyway because of it, you know, and, and we had that conversation about a cue, you know, it, it happens. It was just beyond your ability to cope. I could go out to the gym right now and overload myself and crush myself and have an acute injury. We all have a threshold. So that happened. No big deal. You know? So I think just, you know, like Mike said, if you, if, if you get them, to kind of, if you steer the ship and get them to kind of answer the questions of risk reward, what am I going to get out of trying to hammer myself? Um, am I going to lose the two hundred fifty thousand dollars at his first place, or is it like a million now? Who knows? Two seventy five, I think. It's okay. Or my, you know, is is my at the is the best case scenario? Even if I wasn't hurt, was that I was going to like become? I was going to be number ten thousand one hundred thirty seventh instead of you know fifteen thousandth. So, uh, you know, yeah, I guess that's just kind of where I'm at with it. I'll let you guys go. Yeah. I think you would definitely have that realistic conversation of like, and this isn't being an asshole as a clinician saying, well, you're no rich Froning or Matt Frazier. So why are you so concerned about this? Cause it's still their goal and it's still important to them, but it's just setting the realistic expectation of like, obviously exercise is an important part of your livelihood or we wouldn't be having this discussion. So let's try to ensure that we can keep you exercising at the level you want to long-term versus just having this short-term game of let's mitigate pain so you can go right into the next week of open training and probably prolong this entire effort later on, or we're possibly dealing with something worse down the road because we didn't take the time that we needed to recover and heal. So it's just looking at it from let's play the long game on this versus the short game of just the next week. Uh, I think those are very good points out of all of this and looking at it from we are doing this to train. Like, I think you, your discussion might change if it was somebody who literally had a shot yeah, and so going to the next level. It. Yeah. Well, and yeah. And once again, this gets into the multifactorial nature of it all. And I've joked for a while that I want to start a t-shirt printing company that makes 5k t-shirts. That way when my runners tell me that they've signed up for the 5k already, I can just hand up the t-shirt and try and talk them into not going and doing it that weekend. Yeah. Especially if they've not <laughs> ran in the past six months at all. Yeah. It's like, right. How would yeah. we change this discussion? Cause I know this is going to get asked. So I just want to go ahead and ask it. Uh, Cause the listeners would probably ask if this were Matt Frazier, and he suffered an acute injury right now to the back, and we rolled all the nasty stuff out, do our expectations discussion change at all for him in the next week? Well, yeah. 
How did they change? Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it, it, I guess it just depends. If, with it, when it's Matt Frazier in regards to the Open, it's like the expectation is maybe you don't win the Open. Maybe you don't become, maybe you're not number one in the entire world in the Open this year, you know? And so, like, but that's not a goal. With a guy like that, we're thinking, okay, you know, our, our goal, we need to, we need to do what we have to do to make it to the next level. Like, obviously, you need to get to regionals. Yeah. So we do what we got to do. But just understand that we may actually purposely dial you back just because to get you there. This, to get you there. And it's, it's like, this will get better unless we get in the way of Mother Nature. Yeah. And so you start make you start dropping out the timelines. He opens one five weeks. Yeah. Regionals is, is another two months after and then the games another some, or something you, like that. You've got some time to play with in between each one for sure. Right. So we've got some windows there and it's like the goal for you because for a guy like that, especially he's got, you know, he's got a lot of wiggle room. And so we can say like, we'll do our best to not sensitize you during the week, knock symptoms down, train what we can train to try to mitigate fitness loss. Yeah. Um, but you're basically, we're going to have to coast probably. I think that very much I agree with that totally. And the discussion is um, just to kind of like reassure them a little bit. Look at your base of foundational exercise previously before this injury. We're going to run off of all the previous training you've done. So even if we dial it back, you're not going to have so much atrophy or deconditioning occur that it's going to mitigate the years of training you've already put into this. So we need to make a calculated decision of how much work we've got to get done and how much we're willing to tolerate to get you to the next step of regionals and then how we recover in between. Well, I think the other thing that kind of bears mentioning is I highly doubt that that elite athlete is going to be reaching out to a random practitioner as well, because it's it's going to be someone that they know. And because as soon as any athlete puts up, like I did X on social media, every person who thinks they have some grasp on healing is in the comments section with, oh, you should try Z. And, you know, you these people have people they rely on and you just hope that the people they're relying on are giving them good information. And that's, you know, when I have the higher level athletes coming through, it really is having honest discussions, but to have a really honest discussion with somebody of that level, you have to know them pretty well. Do yeah. you, do you think there's some ethical dilemmas with providing false sense of hope with this, the Z intervention that you're discussing? Like, we all know that the likelihood of expediting healing for this injury is really, really low. Like we're not going to expedite healing with this. We can delay it certainly by overreaching consistently and sensitizing you. But what about these people do, do you get these acute injuries and they go get these kind of non-efficacious modalities? They get placebo like analgesia effects and then they go push themselves again and they make an injury that they already had even worse. So they keep re-injuring because it's providing a false sense of hope that they've never given themselves time to actually heal. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? I mean, I'm anti doing the Z intervention anyway, so I'm, I'm on your side in yeah. this debate, but I know um, that the stance is going to be taken that, well, we could do this and get pain mitigation, but I think it's bigger. You're assuming that pain uh, perception is one-to-one -one correlation to the tissue damage where in this case they could get pain mitigation, but that tissue is still pretty fucked up. I mean, throw some Toradol in it, man. Make him feel good. Let him go. But I think it comes down to what we've already talked about. You know, you just got to be honest. So th there is ethical dilemmas if you're not if you're not being honest about the intervention. So 
I mean, period. That's not just in an acute injury standpoint where you're trying to get somebody faster. That's on a daily basis with anything. So the conversation should be had. We can, we can do this. It may reduce your pain. Um, and if the conversation goes beyond that from a mechanistic standpoint, then it's just, it's, there's no ground to stand on. And so it's kind of on you as a clinician. I, you know, I don't think you'd ever get burned for it because none of that stuff does, not only does it not do anything really, it doesn't do anything. So it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So the yeah. only thing that's negative is you're, you're creating reliance on it, which is not something that somebody could measure or take to court. So I think, you know, I, w- I would say that would make me less inclined to want to do those interventions because I don't want to provide the athlete with a false sense of hope that they're okay to go back out and push this to a hundred percent. I would rather them be a little hesitant in this window. So they, they're like, Hey, I probably shouldn't do this because I know I'm injured and I'm not trying to fear monger them, but I want to keep them within reasons of what they're able to do currently while injured. Yeah. I think it all comes down to, you, I mean, they're going to make the choice though, because then you could ask, Take out the modalities for a second, and then we'll go back to the Matt Frazier. Where is it ethical to let him keep training with the? He's already a little hurt, and so we know if he keeps competing, his risk for re-injury is is most likely higher because he he's already injured. So yeah, I, I think you just got to give him the choice. You say like, as long as you tell them you're you're hurt, we're we are increasing risk a little bit, but we are going to reduce risk as much as we can by not overreaching during training. We'll keep it, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's a calculated I think a more, risk. Yeah, it's calculated risk. I think a more uh, relevant example is some somewhere in between Matt Frazier over here and then, you know, somebody who's very, very new to the open, somebody in the middle who's kind of like borderline regionals or maybe like a lot for regionals is like borderline games you know, type of thing where it's like, now for me, I don't know if the conversation, I think the conversation is probably still more similar to the, to the Matt Frazier thing, because like there, you're only going to have so many opportunities to be that good at something and like potentially make it to the games or like top 10. Like I'm respecting, I guess it's the athlete. I mean, respecting that from their perspective, you know, they train hard, like at that level, at regional levels, they train their ass off all year you know, to get there. But again, it's, it's being upfront with everything we talked about. I think you have to tell them straight up. Yeah. We are, it's a calculated risk um, and we'll do what, yeah. And we don't have a crystal ball. Like no. I can't look at this and say, if you decide to, and it's your choice, if you decide to back off this season and we make next year a run for it, maybe next year it turns into be the best fucking year you've ever had. And you do go to the games and you even win the games. Like there is no crystal ball to this. There are no absolutes. So it's just trying to have honest conversations and then make a game plan for there. I think. Yeah. It's hard with no context too, because severity of, of the acute injury certainly plays a part, you know, if they're like, it could derail the whole thing, depending on what we're talking about. If it's, if it's just sub threshold and it knocks them off, it knocks their top end percentage uh, performance off by 5%. Well, that sucks, but they could probably still get to regionals. You just got to get there. They're already at that level. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it it also depends now if they're like borderline, if they're borderline regionals and we're playing this up and down game, I'm much more inclined to go. Yeah. I'm much more inclined to go the other way and just say, listen, man, I think we, we cut our losses. You can, you know, I don't know if that means pulling out of the open, but it probably means like you, you needed to be tip top just to get to regionals, just to have a chance to get to regionals. 
it's unlikely that you're going to be tip top because of this. That's you know? And so we're realistic or predicted expectation. Right. Set. The risk reward at that point just doesn't seem worth it. Go ahead. No, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. I, I, think the fun part will be if the comment section of this is like, well, you didn't check for this, but I think this also demonstrates the difficulty that you have to have context for everything. Yeah. And, you know, we can make it as simple as possible. And that's why we ran it here with like, everything checks out. Well, you know, somebody's going to be, did you check great toe extension? Well, yes, it was fine. We'll go ahead and save that one for the comment <laughs> section. Dorsiflexion <laughs> is perfect. Um, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, that's one good thing about CrossFit is because it's so intense. Like the minutia, you have to an injury at that point. It's either you can tolerate the intenseness of the workout, or you can't. There is no five yeah, degrees of yeah. dorsiflexion here. Or there is going to get you somewhere. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know a minute in whether you're going to be able to finish this thing or not. Um, and so it's like kind of almost just self limiting in and of itself. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a good discussion. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, just to say too, cause I don't think we've said this thus far, this whole discussion kind of came about cause people were asking as feedback to the podcast, um, what do we approve of? Cause I think we very much harp on a lot of things that we don't approve of and the research evidence and supportive of. So setting expectations, I think all of us would agree is something that's our number one things that we consider when we're having patient discussions as far as what we should be doing as clinicians. I want to touch on that point too, because I think it, that is, it's, it's our number one point of contention or feedback with clinical athlete in general. And the podcast is that we tell you what not to do, but then don't tell you what to do. And it's almost like it's, that's done purposely or, or whatever, but you got to think about it. It's a lot easier for me as a clinician if, if something doesn't have the evidence that I feel is needed to put in, I'm just not, okay, it's like, I don't know what that does, but I know that I'm not going to do it. I know what it doesn't do, and I'm going to choose that. So it's just easier to trim the fat and to say, like, these things you probably don't have to worry about. What to do is not a cookie-cutter approach. Like, the, the case that you just des described, Derek, it's like, what do you do? Well, it depends on this, 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 this. How do you talk to them? Well, it depends on this, this, this. It's just harder. Like, we can't say, don't do this, do this. We can say, don't do this. We might want to steer it this way if X, Y, Z, but then maybe this way if A, B, C. So just, I hope that, you know, puts some context. Like, we're not doing it on purpose. You just kind of have to, we're not in the clinic with you to discuss the, the specific cases, you know, and I think it's a, a benefit that you can at least trim the fat on things that would maybe be wasting time and resources. And then we can continue to have these longer discussions about what to do. And then when you can learn context and think, you know, critical thinking, kind of put patterns together, these types of things, like we all get better at that just by doing what we're doing here, which is discussing it. But I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. I think, uh, the takeaway could be, you, you just need to talk to your patients and have very honest discussions about where they're coming from and where you're coming from and try to meet in the middle somewhere. And, um, if you want to be better at talking to your patients, talk to your patients. 
talk to people. I, yeah. I think that's really what it comes down to is, you know, a lot of times we get in these echo chambers of people that we agree with. And all of a sudden we start forming our little tribes where it's us versus them. And we're all in this together. I mean, it's, I, I have seen my semantics change from volitionally saying physical therapist to now rehab professional because I hang out with Mike a lot more. But in the same token, like he had to call me on it probably 15 times, if not more than that, before it started to happen. And it's being around people that are comfortable calling you on your shit. <laughs> and I think the more you get comfortable with that, the easier it is to get better at your shit and develop into a much more nuanced, broad frame approach into things to be able to discuss things that are uncomfortable. I mean, there is no easy discussion with an athlete who's trying to go to regionals and that's all they want. Like that, that's a hard talk. But if you've had that talk a lot of times and you've, you've had some good debates with some other people's regarding some of the minutia of it, you're prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also keep the, keep the feedback coming too. So, you know, we don't want to say that's just kind of our, this was our response to that whole, we'll try to be, you know, we'll go in that direction, but there's also, there's going to be some back and forth, you know, there's, because there's just as much to uh, sift through as there is to climb on. I don't know. Yeah. You get what I'm We have, we have a lot there. more evidence against things we shouldn't be doing versus there's only a subset of things we should be doing that we have evidence for versus all the evidence we have of things we probably shouldn't be doing. So it just turns into this discussion of what we shouldn't be doing. Cause there's just so much more out there. Yeah, exactly. Well, but yeah, good, good stuff guys. Um, and, and thanks to our six listeners and, uh, give us feedback on this one. It'll be, a, it'll be on iTunes, YouTube, and the clinical athlete website. And we'll see you next time.